Um, before coming this morning, I was thinking what I'm going to tell up front to let people know that we're going to spend the whole day. I couldn't figure out a way of telling you that story, but God provided. He snowed us in. <laughs> Perfect timing, right? We're in for the long haul, right? Um, it is really a privilege for me to, to share with you today. Um, and um, I hope that uh, by the end of this sermon today, you come, you go away inspired um, and to do that which the Lord called us to do. So we are here not by accident. We individually and corporately profess that we disciple committed to following Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And now we are this community of believers set apart to do God's work, to transform people and bring them into reconciliation with their Creator. But as many of you may know, at least from my perspective, the social fabric of our society is quietly disintegrating at a rapid pace. I'm wondering if you are aware of it. I'm certain that um, some of you may know or may uh, know about it and may not be concerned, but what I'm about to share this morning uh, may not come to you as a surprise. But for me, when I became aware of it, it was. Today, when somebody talks about, you know, um, social problems, um, especially in America, you know, what goes to the mind quickly is what? Gun violence, racism, sexism, stereotype, biases, anti-Semitism, etc., because those are really prevalent in our society. Although those issues are very, um, you know, challenging for us, and we know they are very prevalent, um, and there are many social malaise that I did not mention here, what I'm about to share with you is not any of the ones that I just listed. Um, it is perhaps unlike other social problems. Perhaps they feel benign. Perhaps they feel normal. Pastor Conrad and many others in the congregation have been teaching us about the life of Paul, how he followed Christ. Paul's efforts to share the gospel, to share the gospel of the resurrected Christ seemed like an impossible task, but miraculously it succeeded against all odds. As a result, here in E-Town today we have the privilege, you and I, to be that community also to, to take the gospel forward like Paul did. Paul felt very completely responsible for the sharing of the good, good news. He was passionate about it, and he was determined. Right? He was on fire, and all those people that committed their life, got the, the good news from Paul, committed their, their life to follow Christ, also was, they were also on fire for the good news. And sometime, literally. Today, you and I have been called, transformed, and commissioned to bear the same good news. <clears throat> My hope is that you are excited and you also know the magnitude uh, of that responsibility. Let me begin a little bit by giving you an idea about the trajectory of my sermon for you today, just in case I call some of you to fall asleep. Um, I will list some points, so when you wake up later, you can just know which point you woke up at and ask somebody else later to, to tell you which point you missed while sleeping. First, I will speak briefly about some of the issues that I just... Um, what I just mentioned as the social problem in our society. And second, I will briefly de define what a benchmarking community is, which is the title of our sermon today. Third, I will offer some suggestion what it means to live as a benchmark community. For that, I will offer some thoughts, uh, tell some stories along the way to spur you on as you live your Christian life or faith journey. And fourth, 
I will wrap up and move out of the way um, so I don't stand between you and your lunch. So let me begin with um, how this message came about. Um, I, this message came about last October. Uh, I was in Washington State in a meeting. Um, every year our department get together for a retreat. I'm, I work for World Vision when I make reference to things like sometimes I, I forget to, 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 to give reference to what I'm talking about. So w I went to Washington DC, Washington State to, for a department meeting. Um, and during that time, we also had um, what we call a day of prayer. Every year, World Vision, uh, as World Vision staff, we get together to, uh, to pray, kind of launch off our um, you know, fiscal year. We spend a day uh, to pray. And during that time, also a lot of people a lot of uh, speakers come and, and, and give several messages. So it was during that time, one of the messages really spoke powerfully to me. And the speaker used um, a tagline like this, for such a time as this. He used it continually to a point where this thing started having an impact on me, even though his point of message, you know, his point wasn't about that tagline. He had a different message, but he used that tagline continuously. So it became so heavy on me that I'm, I begin to wonder why this thing is in my mind and wouldn't go away. So I kept reflecting on it um, until a couple of weeks ago, I began to understand why that tagline was important. So um, you know, the taglines, for such time as this, there are a lot of scripture references um, that has this line, but the one that kept coming to my mind was the one from the book of Esther, chapter 4, verse 14. Uh, we're not, that's, that's not, um, I'm just giving you the reference what was coming in my mind. This story is about the Mordecai urging Esther to go to the king to tell the king so that the Jewish community will not be exterminated as Haman, who had orchestrated this plan to exterminate um, the, the, the Jewish community. So Mordecai tells Esther, go tell the king. And you remember the scripture, no one could approach the presence of the king without being invited. So telling Esther to go to tell the king about this could mean death. But Mordecai tells her, it's time, maybe it's such a time as this that you need to muster up courage and go tell the king. And we know the end of the story. Esther does go to the king. She tells the king. And the king ends up impaling Haman, who orchestrated the plan, on the pole that Haman has actually put up to impel uh, um, uh, Mordecai. And then the, later, the Jewish community actually ended up exterminating those who have been called to exterminate them uh, through the decree. So that's that line from that book that really kept ringing bells in my mind. So I was, as, as uh, I told you earlier, as I was um, reflecting on this for several weeks, um, I couldn't figure out what, why it was coming back to my mind. Um, but then a couple weeks ago when I was I start begin to, to, to think about what I want to share with you today. This begin to, um, the, the dots begin to connect. Uh, about two weeks ago, I, I, I went to, to the mid, uh, Midwest with uh, Brenton. Um, during that trip, uh, one evening I was sitting in a hotel. I stumbled on an article that the title of the article was Marriage and Cohabitation in the U.S. And the article was put uh, by the Pew Research. Uh, basically, it suggests that the number of people that are cohabitating, basically living together, have passed the number of marriage, married couple, especially a young, uh, among young generation, young people. The article raised several questions in my mind. So I, you know, I, I began to, to wonder and then just went on to find some related, um, you know, information about this. 
this was a Friday evening, and then we spent the night um, along the way, and we spent the night, and the, on Saturday, we met with another pastor and had conversation, and then evening, we just went on to uh, um, the first Mennonite night in, in uh, uh, Indiana. That's where Brenton, uh, the, the former um, director of STEP program, preached. He preached two sermons that day, one in the morning and one in the evening. And during his sermon, he also <laughs> mentioned something that really caught my attention. Um, it was a report, uh, research, I mean, a report about uh, the nuns. The nuns are the group of people that absolutely have no religious affiliation. Okay? And he mentioned that this group is growing at a rapid pace. So I went on to actually look up this article as well for my own information. Um, it's, the title of it is, In the U.S., Decline of Christianity Continue at Rapid Pace. So the Pew Research did this uh, research um, between 2007 and 2014, and they found that, um, recently they did another update, they found that 65% of American adults describe themselves as Christian today when asked about the religion. That is 12% uh, down from, um, uh, from a decade ago. So from 2007 till uh, now, Christianity has declined by 12% in the United States. So hold that in your mind. Uh, if we can um, uh, put this up, as you can see in the graph, that's sort of what the, 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 the graph uh, represents. So um, this is uh, the, the result of the survey. It looks like the trend is progressing steadily on that same trajectory, right? I mean, it's kind of fainted, uh, but you can see at least the line, right, where the line is pointing. Uh, the one on the bottom is actually the number of... Um, the trajectory of the people that are um, having less and less faith basically don't believe in anything. So that is increasing. And the one above, as you can see in the graph, is the, 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 the number of, the percentage of Christian in the United States that is declining. Eventually, it looks like if that trends continue, the lines will cross at some point. Uh, a follow-on study, follow study is, uh, to, you know, is projected to come out in 2021 that will also give us a better idea of where um, Christianity is looking like in the United States in terms of people um, saying whether or not they believe in anything. So brace yourself for that. So in sum, um, so from 2000. Uh, nine until now, Christianity among Protestants had declined by 8%. And among Catholics, Catholics it declined by 3%. That's the total of, uh, you know, on the Christian side. Meanwhile, all the other subset of religious, unaffiliated uh, population has grown. All the subset. The self-described atheists have grown by 2%, basically. From 2009 till now, they have doubled their number. Agnostic make up 5% of the U.S. adults. That, too, has grown by 3%. And 17% of Americans now describe the religion as nothing in particular. That is up 12% since 2009. And all the other non-Christian religion Religions have also grown modestly in population. In other words, um, everything else is growing, but Christian numbers is declining. If we can put up this next. This is something that I just put up um, because, as you saw the number, from 2000. Uh, uh, from the time that I just mentioned the statistic, in 10 years, Christianity had declined. 30 million people stopped believing. 
basically have lost their faith. Or this is how many people actually become um, and religious, 30 million in 10, 10 years. So if you look at the numbers, you do the math, in a year, basically that's 3 million. Uh, in a month, 250 people. In a day, about 8,000. In an hour, about 300. In a second, about six people. So presumably, when we finish this service, as many people, perhaps as church of, of our size, have closed its door. Well, this may be a bit of overstatement, but it is not far-fetched far from the reality, if indeed the Pew Research is true. And my hope is that they are wrong. Okay, if we go to the next, I hope it is wrong. Again, this, this graph, you can't see it clearly. Um, but that demonstrates basically the categories, the group, uh, the subgroup category. But what I want to point out in this graph is the millennials are leading the chart. Basically, the younger generations are becoming less religious. Younger generation. Well, the rest of us, I don't count myself a younger generation because I'm old. I like to feel that way. They are leading the charge. Probably the generation following them may be like that. I want to thank our young, uh, youth because they are the one that will be the future of the church. Um, and you can see that um, this, they are leading the charge. And one thing that I, I noticed in there, that in the Northeast, which is where we are, right? Northeast in the United States. If you cut the country in four quadrants, we're in the Northeast, correct? This is where the number of people that are quitting Christianity or are believing in nothing so are, is leading the chart, basically. Can you move to the next one? And this chart, again, is not clear. Um, we can't see it clearly. I looked at the two articles and then kind of tried to, to compare what, what may be the link between the people that now cohabitate, and, and in other words, don't see value in marriage anymore. Uh, they move together, and, uh, and then also the people that um, are called the nuns basically don't believe in anything other than themselves. Uh, I looked at the both articles, and I found a correlation, because it's the same group in terms of, um, of age. Age, age range, okay? Um, that's where I, it, it, become, it became a little troubling for me. Um, so the share of adults 18 to 14 um, of age uh, who ever lived with an unmarried uh, partner is 59%, and that has surpassed uh, the share of those who have ever been married. That still didn't give me heartburn. But what gave me heartburn is the percentage of people that believe that it's okay for young people to live together without getting married. I, I don't know. I, I, just, I think that I found this a little bit uh, unsettling because 69% um, felt like it's okay. People can live together. Um, it doesn't matter if, whether they decide to get married or not. 16% uh, say they can live together if they eventually get married. 14%, only 40% object to that number. For me, if this is not a religious apostasy, I don't know what it is. What, it is. what does that mean for us as a Christian faith? What is the implication for that change? Something for you to think about. We can move next. Our children are not doing any better either. Um, there was another article about how the youth is, they are um, being depressed and anxious. They are hijacked by anxiety and depression, which is another problem within 
within the youth. And especially they see this as a they see they see this as a problem among their peers. Yeah, they may not be directly affected by uh, those uh, the, this, the, the, the anxiety and depression, but the perception is prevalent among them, which in a way affects them. So people are becoming less religious, especially the younger generation. Marriage is losing um, meaning, especially among younger generation. And I, the teen are also experiencing anxiety and depression what is really happening? Are we aware of it? I wonder. Well, I really wanted to thank um, Andy and Jessica. I thank you for really um, taking care of our, our, our youth because this is something, as I understand, have been discussed and help our, our youth because they are the future of the church. Thank you. And also, Ethan and Katira, I think you are also support um, the youth pastor, and, and thank you for your ministry. And also for, for Bethany, those who are nurturing our children. I think it's important for us to uh, reinstate or emphasize the importance of our Christian faith, the value that we have in family, and also our faith in Christ. We need to reinforce that, especially with our children. So what, are, what does that all mean for us? Is it a problem too big to solve for us? Does it break your heart? I hope it does, because I don't think God can rejoice over something like this. We may not grasp the future implications of those things today, but normalizing them in our society would have detrimental consequences for the faith community I'm afraid. We have something exciting here in E-Town. I think we've been talking about this vision, uh, apostolic vision, vision that we can take not only from here in E-Town to the world. Please hold this statistic in your mind as we progress through the sermon because I think that it'll help understand why we need to um, be ever more vigilant in our faith. Uh, if we can move to the next slide. Uh, again, it's just too small. So basically, in sum, the reason why people move together are this. It's same as when people get married, they love each other, they want to uh, live together. But what I found striking is these people, they move together, but they have no commitment whatsoever, zero commitment to each other. They, their reason is it makes sense financially. It was convenient. They want to test the relationship. Think about those things. Their partner got pregnant. Some of these things, for me, is the result of our consumerism society mentality. Let me test it. It doesn't work. I return it. Let me see if it's convenient. If it's not, throw it out. I don't know if that works for the faith community like that. So, but here's the exciting thing. Marriage is still viewed as a positive thing, despite of people doing, making those decisions, okay? Now, so this is kind of a grim picture. I painted about that one problem we have in our society, and aside many others that I mentioned earlier at the beginning, right? Uh, there are many others, many, many, many other social problems that we are dealing with as a Christian. I think we need to be aware of them, and see how they are actually affecting us. So, I titled the sermon today, Benchmark Community. What does that mean? Let me define it. A benchmark community, according to Miriam Dictionary Webster, um, it's something that it serves as standard to measure things. It's a point of reference. 
Okay? It's uh, a basis for evaluation or com make comparison. The term is widely used in business as, you know, for best practices or, you know, performance uh, measurement. I'm not by any means suggesting that we as a congregation, we as a Christian community are the standard um, placing ourselves above others. No, that's not the, what I'm suggesting here. Being a benchmark community means a spiritually transformed community that is stump, uh, um, humble, steadfast in, in the faith in Christ, a community that should be desirable for others to join. Paul defines it in Galatians 3, verse 27 through 29. I would suggest that the youth think about, you know, look up this, this uh, reference because I'm going to come back to it. Galatians 3, verse 27 through 29. Look it up so that you can give the, um, the, the page to everyone. As we began to, to learn about uh, Apostle Paul, we understood that he spent his life going shipwreck after shipwreck, transforming lives, and, and telling people about the resurrected Christ. Paul's intent was to bring the Jews and Gentiles together under the Lordship of Christ. Paul's message was primarily about building the community of believers, community transformed by the Holy Spirit, to allow the resurrected Christ turning, um, to, turn, I mean, to turn their life back from the, 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 the paganism that they were hijacked by. It was a distinct community that resembled neither the established Jewish community nor the Roman pagan world. Paul's community, unlike some of our communities today, did not have the sort of a built-in kinship um, that um, we experience today, nor the system like the Jewish uh, or, or the legitimate institution of society like the Roman world. Paul's, the community Paul built did not resemble anything other than these one that people knew at the time. You are neither Jews, no uh, is a uh, uh, Greek, female, or male. It was a unique society. The hallmark of Paul's unprecedented ideal community is described in Galatians 3. Uh, what did you find a page? 944. If you can turn your, script, uh, your Bible to that, 944. Uh, if you have a different version, then you just look up Galatians 3, verse 23 verse, uh, to 29. If you were there, let me read it for you. You were all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. This is neither Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and hers according to his promise. So we, we must be very careful, though, in uh, interpreting Paul's idea in this passage. Um, according to one of, uh, William uh, Barclay, you know, one of the commentators, um, he says that baptism was the Jewish right. When somebody wanted to join the Jewish faith, he had to do three things. Okay? That person had to be circumcised, they have to offer, um, you know, sacrifice, and they had to be baptized. It was through the baptism they entered the Jewish faith. In other words, baptism grafted that person into the Jewish uh, community um, and then gave them that identity. In this passage, Paul is trying to get across the idea of source of identity. Our identity is given to us through baptism. When we enter into union with Christ, our baptism, it is such a way that all makers of status identify fall away in significance. In other words, once we are one in Christ, we are no longer male, female, Jews, and Gentiles, whatever you want to name it. We are one in Christ. That's what gives us our identity. The character of the... the <clears throat> it, is, it also entails that Death entails death to our old life and entry into the new world. 
the character of the new world are described in that passage, especially verse 28. I mean, uh, verse 28, so you can read it again, if you will. The baptismal imagery here is the transformational power that Paul is calling our attention to, and we must undergo it. So by definition, this community with this ideal suggests that the differences that distinguish people have been leveled. You and I can agree that the opinion within the Christian doctrines um, and traditions would vary about this teaching from Paul. But that is not the point of our um, conversation today, at least this morning. One thing we know for sure is that Christ, in Christ there is freedom. In Christ there is freedom, and freedom to all who accept him and decide to follow him. We can also agree that despite the challenge that this community that Paul formed at early, early days of Christianity, they faced a lot of challenges. Despite all these challenges, they persevered. They persevered, and in fact, they thrived during the era of great persecution that started at the first century and intensified through the second century, through the, 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 the part of uh, the third century. The Roman Empire, Diocletian, gave it a good college try to exterminate Christianity, but he failed. And later on, we know that uh, Christianity became the main religion of the Roman Empire. I wonder if God has a sense of humor that, yeah, you hate me enough, I'm going to write on your back to spread through the world. The Roman, I mean, it was almost like God used the Roman Empire to spread the good news. That, again, is another subject that we can talk about, but it's not part of our sermon this morning. But today, um, we are that community in, in, in today's world. We face the same challenges. Perhaps our challenges are more serious, especially here where we live. The threat to Christianity is no longer physical, especially in our world here in America. It's not physical. It's probably subtle, unnoticed, and sometimes even normalized. We think things are okay. It's okay to be what? To cohabitate. It's okay not to go to church, or in fact, it's okay to believe in nothing. It's normal. 30 million in 10 years do not believe in anything that is progressing. And the majority of young people are no longer, don't see importance in an institution that God put in place for human to live with one another. Again, if you can try to project those statistics. My hope is that they are wrong, but if they are true, try to project it out in the future 30, 50, 100 years. I wonder what the world would be like. But we are the solution. I think we are the solution, and I believe it. We are the solution to this problem. You can't light a light and put it under um, the table. And Luke 11.33 said, No one lights a lamp and put it in its place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand so that um, those who come in see the light. You know, I grew up in a society where we didn't have electricity. You know, I grew up in Chad. No electricity. At nighttime, you can see all the stars you want to see because it's pitch dark. All we had is a lamp. You know, some of them are... Could be, you know, I mean, it's a little bigger than this. And then you put gasoline, no, not gasoline, petroleum inside. You light it. That's what we had, a source of light at night. As little as this, this lamp were, you could see it from far away in a pitch dark night. So we are this community in a world that looks like darkness. My question is, are people seeing us? Now, 
Point number three. What do I mean by benchmark community? Allow me to be a little bit presumptuous this morning to suggest that we are actually that community. Okay? Because faith is a matter of individual commitment to following Christ. We are actually that community. That hunger for the presence of Holy Spirit and obedient to, its direction, to His direction. We are the body of Christ in the four corners of this magnificent building, shedding the light to the outside world here in E-Town and beyond. In another word, there should be something unique about us, our individual life, that should arouse some interest from people that are not working in faith. Ephesians 2, verse 10 says, We, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good work, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let me read it again. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And the New Living, um, tra- Living uh, trans- uh, Translation Bible says, For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. If you can put up uh, the next slide. You may not be able to read this, but let me read it from here. Anti Wright explained this passage much, much, much better for me. And he says, We are God's poetry, God's artwork. God has accomplished and will accomplish the entire new creation in the Messiah and by the Spirit. When someone believes the gospel and discovers a life-transforming power, that person becomes a small but significant working model of that new creation. As far as Paul was concerned, the point of being human was to be an image-bearer, to reflect God's wisdom and order into the world, and to reflect the praise and creation back to God. Those who are grasped by grace in the gospel and who bear witness to that in the loyal belief in the one God focused on Jesus are not merely beneficiaries, recipients of God's mercy. They are agents. They are poem in which God is addressing the world. And a poem is designed to do, as the poems are designed to do, they break open existing way of looking at things and spark the mind to imagine a different way of being, a different way to be human. Those are powerful, powerful um, statements. We are aging. We are God's poems. And poems are designed to do what? To spark some, some joy in somebody's heart. Some of you may be writing poems. And you know, when I was dating my wife many years ago, before we got married, uh, we dated each other mostly through long distance. And guess what? I wrote a lot of letters. And I tried to compose them like a poem. I'm not a poem writer. You know why I wrote them? You know, my wife can tell you, I wrote a lot, whether or not they would look like a poem, but I, I wanted them to, look like, to sound like a poem. Why? Because I want her to like me too. I guess it worked. <laughs> 16 years later, we're, and here we are. You are a poem, masterpiece for God. Don't forget that. But you are also an agent. What does an agent do? When we say agent, we think about what? Police agent, FBI agent, right? What do they do? They get trained, right? And they are sent by somebody. Once they have been trained, do they sit in an office? No. An agent goes out where they are they're supposed to be, in the field. And they report back to whoever sent them. You are the agent of God. You are the masterpiece. 
And a poem, I actually like that imagery better. A poem, ref- it's, 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 it's beautiful. People would love it. We are God's poems. We should attract others to the kingdom of God. Point four. Are we still together? I haven't met anybody fall asleep yet, right? Um, during the day of prayer, again, as I mentioned earlier, uh, one of our um, staff that preached, the national director, he, a former uh, director of World Vision India, shared, he shared many stories, and those stories really captured my attention, and I'm going to be telling you a few this morning. So in Rajasthan, North India, we worked closely with um, you know, Hindus, you know, uh, India is, is, is predominantly Hindu society, and there are other religions as well. So there was uh, a Hindu man um, uh, in that village. He was head of a uh, village committee. Um, so his state president heard that, you know, he said the state president was his friend. He heard that he was working closely with World Vision. World Vision is a Christian organization. So his dead president heard that he was working very closely with World Vision, and, and he was concerned. And, he, and on one of his tr- visit, his trip, he decided to go see his friend. And then, and then he asked him, he said, I heard that you are um, uh, working closely with uh, uh, World Vision. And his, his friend in the village said, yes, we are. Uh, they do clinics, they do this and they do that. Yes, we are. He said, well, you know World Vision is a Christian organization, right? Say, yeah, I know. Yeah. And you know, this, these Christian organizations, they do this, they build clinics, they build roads, and they do all sorts of things, and the next day they want you to become Christian. Did you know that? And his friend from the village says, you know what? Yes, they do all these things. But if you look at their lives... If you look at their lives, you want to become Christian too. His friend didn't talk about the things that they did. His friend told him about their life. If you look at their lives, you want to become Christian too. That is the benchmark community, my friend. And that is the benchmark community. Shining the light brightly in the corner, dark corner of the world so that people can see. Not but necessarily what we do, but who we are. We need to start living like what we believe because we are the new creation in God, in Christ, that need to be reflected in the world in which we live. And that light we reflect to people around us and back to God as an offer of praises. We are his masterpiece. He has redeemed us through the blood of Christ. Do people want to become Christian because of me, because of you, because of us? Ask that yourself that question. We live in society just like in India, right? Again, another story from North India. That story is about a little boy that is part of our, our program in World Vision. It will, a little boy was very sick. His parents tried everything. And finally, uh, the doctor from the village told, him, told them that you need to go to a better doc, I mean, a hospital because this hospital here is not going to um, help. So they decided to go to Chennai, which is um, a, a, a city in, in India. And, and they took him to, to the hospital that is much bigger. And it was a Christian hospital. The child needed surgery. He needed to have surgery, but the doctor at that, new, that bigger hospital realized that he was too weak. They couldn't perform the surgery. So he had to wait, and they, you know, of course they treated him until he regained a little bit of his strength before they performed the surgery. And during that time, World Vision staff um, went with the mother, and he was praying for him every day. And he would go to the chapel. He prayed for that little boy and his mother. The mother of the young boy, that that little boy, was Hindu. And his father was a Hindu priest. 
So it came a time where the boy was uh, strong enough, and then they performed the surgery. Um, no detail were given to us what kind of disease he was thinking, I mean, if he was dealing with, and that is not important, by the way. Um, the boy, the surgery was successful, and the boy regained his strength, and he was well. But when they, when they, uh, they started the surgery, um, before they started surgery, the boy needed some blood. Now, the, the World Vision staff that was there with him decided to give blood. Obviously, there was a match. I'm not a doctor. Some of you are doctors. You know, there's got to be some match, right? Did blood sometimes work with this and it doesn't work with this? There was a match. So he decided to give blood. Mind you, that wasn't in the, his job description. His job was to care for the beneficiaries of the program that we, as staff, implement. Giving blood wasn't part of his job description, but he gave it anyway, out of his heart. So, months later, the national director went to see the family of that young boy. And he, he, uh, he looked him up, he said, well, how are you doing? He said, well, the boy is now very well, he's running around, um, he, he's in good health. And he asked his father, he's like, what does that all mean to you now? He said, you know what? I've been looking at you guys for years, how you've been handling our family. And for the last couple of months, I was impressed. And I wonder, is that because of your God? And you know what? And he told uh, our staff, a Hindu priest, he said, I went out, I bought myself a Bible. And now I'm reading that Bible every day. But don't tell anybody. Don't tell my Hindu friends. They don't know I'm reading the Bible every day. He did it not because of our program. He did it because he saw the faith of the people that were dealing with his, his family. Now the seed of the gospel is planted deeply in the heart of Hindu priests. Imagine the impact of that. The seed is planted in the Hindu priests, not just anybody. I can only imagine the, the, you know, the impact of that in the long run. The righteous shall live by faith. That Hindu is reading the scripture every day and praying. I can only imagine the impact. So my question to you is, are you excited about sharing with others? Do you feel a sense of pain and lament for people that are struggling? As we looked at the statistics this morning, do you feel lament for that? How far can we go to make somebody becoming Christian? How far do we go? How does that look to you? That's a question I want to leave with you. It looks like it wasn't a rocket science for the, the, that particular staff, World, World Vision staff. It wasn't, it wasn't a rocket science. He just did what felt right, right? He didn't even imagine the implication of his action. But now somebody, a Hindu priest, may very well be the person preaching to the Hindu community tomorrow. It is something very... Uh, uh, it's important for us to be aware of these things that happen around us and not rationalize them. Um, I, I don't think it is okay, for me, at least from my perspe humble perspective, it's not okay for people to move, around, uh, move together and uh, start a life together without that which God mandated. It's not okay. It's not okay for people to turn around and abandon their faith. Something is happening. It calls to our attention. We are the benchmark community setting the, setting the example uh, worthy of Christ's name. That may be your colleagues at work. It may be the people that you're working for. It may be even the person 
that you are employing, or perhaps people in your own family that need you to become that example for them, to the, the model, that light, that masterpiece. Begin to display God's masterpiece today. It was not created to be swept under a rug, not just for you. You, have, you are that light. It's not just for you. It's for the people that don't know Christ. You know, I, I had a, a privilege to, to observe a lot of things this time when we went to Midwest. I, I'm usually driving when I'm out on the road. And when you're driving, you don't, you got to keep your eyes on the road, right? To avoid accident. But this time I was a passenger. I was looking everywhere. And I realized how many storage places are in the United States. Folks, we live in bigger houses, but there are as many storage places as their houses. People like to store things away. I don't know when they're going to use them. <laughs> right? Sometimes they may never see it. But your faith is not to be stored away. Your faith is to be shared with people that need God. Sometimes, most of the time, it's through how you handle things, handle people. It's not about whacking them on the head with the Bible's verse. That may be necessary through a gentle way. You can share that, but sharing faith has a lot to do with how you live your life. So begin today, my friend. If you have a job and you have colleagues Live like the, the God called you to live. And if you permit it, use the word, use the scripture. Treat your job like heaven called you to, to preach the, God, the gospel. It's not just a function to uh, make uh, money. Be intentional how you see issues that comes across with, that involve people. Be the God masterpiece, be the God artwork. It should be desirable. You should be desirable in appealing to other people in terms of how you handle things. If you are an employer, see your employees as those God put in your care too. Pray that God gives you eyes of how you minister to them. If possible, use words. Be intentional about how you approach issues, um, especially in work-related uh, problems. That may very well be the venue that you're going to bring somebody to wonder about God. I work for a Christian institution. Christians are especially not perfect when you put them together. You know what? There's a joke that when you have manure in one place, it doesn't smell so good. When you spread it out, it's a fertilizer. You guys, there are some of you are farmers. Every year I see people spread it out. It, we are good together here to be informed, to be equipped, not to sit together like that all the time. When we spread out in your workplace, in your family, in, in a school, everywhere you are, be that flavor that everybody desires to be around so that you can share them why you are different. If you're not doing this, you're hiding the masterpiece under storage place somewhere because you are the masterpiece. God created you to be so. He called you to be so. And you are, I told you earlier, I'm going to be presumptuous this morning assuming that we, are, we have gotten the message of transformation. I think Susan told us, taught us uh, last time about it. God transform us. It's not just a nice, feel-good message. It needs to become true to us. You are this special place here in, in Eton. Begin by talking to folks today, older than you, especially you young people on my right hand here. Uh, I want to call your attention to really speak to people that are older than you. One thing I, in, in my society in Africa that we have so much values in people that are older than us, at least the time I was in Africa. I don't know if that has also ch changed because there's so many changes these days. We have so much value in elderly because they have a wealth of knowledge. It's not different here in the United States, especially the grandparents among us here. Young people, 
please match up with the grandparents because they will tell you a wealth of experience that will perhaps make you rethink about the dream you have. You know, what grandparents have is they have gone through a life of experience, some of their dream from their early days that they say, well, I'm grow up, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And they look back to like, that wasn't a good idea. That one wasn't a good idea. If I had to leave it all again, when you hear a grandparent, somebody that's more older than you, say, if I had to do it again, that, my friend, after that, that's a world of wisdom. They probably will tell you, I wouldn't do this. I would do this. I wouldn't do this. Because they have gone through experience that, that has really helped them distill things to the, to the essential, what is important. And sometime in the youth, in the early days, we get passionate about certain things that we don't see how they're going to pan out in the future. So we are privileged because in this church, there are people, grandparents, there are family, young family, and we have the youth, we have the children. We have what we need to share with one another to empower the youth that is the generation the, the, that would lead the church tomorrow. When I was in that first church in, uh, in, in Indiana, I tell you, the average age, I looked across, I don't know where the youth were, the average age probably was 60. I'm not suggesting that 60 is old, because some of us will get there soon. Um, there were no children. There were no children. And here we have that privilege of having some um, of our grandparents to... Um, to share that experience with us. All right, you guys getting tired. Fourth point. You know, on a day like this, I always, I used the snow earlier, but honestly, when I begin pre um, preparing a message, I don't think about time. That's just my Africanness. You just gotta, gotta accept me the way I am, please. We'll just march on, you know, for the rest of the day. I will wrap it up. In, in a little bit, okay? So the last, the last, uh, the last um, part of the um, uh, sermon, here it goes. We need to begin to value people today. Believe it or not, the opportunities are plenty in our lives. You know, be intentional in your walk. Be that light because you have been transformed. Use the opportunity that God has given you. If you don't think you have those opportunities, pray about them. Let God surprise you. Every day, you should be praying for God to give you opportunity to make a difference in somebody's life. If you pray about it, I bet you you will encounter a situation where um, you may be surprised. And this summer, I, you know, some of you know, I work at a, you know, uh, Rosita's uncle has a, um, an auction business, and, you know, now and then I, you know, I will go and help out. And every, this summer, I have an interesting encounter with someone that came at the auction. He bought a lot of things, but in that day it was very hot. I'll be, I'll be short with that story. It was very hot, and the man wanted to leave, of course, and he, wanted, he bought a paver, which is very heavy. You have to use a, a forklift to put it on his trailer, and all the forklifts were busy, and then, you know, I just went to the man. I told him, since he is waiting while the forklift is still helping other people, he could pull up his truck away from other people because there were many people behind him. So I just wanted him to pull aside so that other people that are just waiting they can, can leave. It was just one way. And the man looked at me. He reacted so badly. He looked at me strongly. He's like, you need to wait just like everybody else. He didn't realize I was there working. I said, no, I, I'm, you know, I'm just telling you because people are behind you, they need to move. And he turned to his car. A young man was probably his grandchild. He told him, he's like, young man, you, you hanker down. You're not moving that car. He needs to wait for us just like everybody else. And I, I want to see what he's going to do about it. I looked at him and I realized <laughs> having a conversation is not going to do anything. So I went to the people behind him. I told him, well, be patient, we'll get you out. Right now, we have a situation that seems like we're not going to move the car. And they understood. 
they understood. Later on, we, um, and then I just let it go. And I had the power to tell him, you move that car. I work here, and I got the owner behind me. We can move you. But I chose not to. And then later we helped him. He got out. And he realized, at the end, he realized that he shouldn't have acted the way he acted. You know what he did? He came back to me. He told me, I'm sorry for, you know, reacting like that. I said, it's okay. I don't know what this, that, that may not do anything, but I don't think he would remember me as this person that, you know, wanted to pick a fight with him or uh, reacted negatively to him. Those encounters, sometimes it's moments like this that will make a difference in somebody's life. It may not be as important, but when you are acting on the basis of what help other people, they will ask questions. Why, what is motivating you? And that's an opportunity to share God with them. Sometimes I think we don't realize or don't think deep enough that you and I are serving the God of this universe. God that created this world. You and I have been called to represent that God in this world. Let, let this sink in your mind a little bit. You and I have been called to be God's hands and feet right now here in E-Town and beyond. Let that sink. Because today is your day, not tomorrow. I tell you this because a friend of ours recently got become very ill. Okay? He became very ill. He was just like us a few days ago. Few, few months ago, and today it's hard for him. Last evening, Rosita and I were, were spending time with him at the hospital. Last evening, we were there with him. It's hard to see that a healthy person, month, just like you and me, today and tomorrow, walking and even lifting our hands is not possible for him. It's, he's struggling, walking, struggling, even using his hand. Your, today is your day to share Christ with whoever is maybe in your life. You are that light. Don't hide in, brother and sister, because we don't know about tomorrow. In concluding, I will tell you last, one last story, and then we uh, will we'll, um, uh, end the service. Jody was another... Um, young girl in India. She was one of, a, a, um, one of the, the children that, you know, um, we, we call as a child leader uh, in, you know, in, in, in the group that we, we serve. So she was invited to speak to a council in Singapore to about, you know, 400 people. She spoke so eloquently that, you know, everybody was wowed out. So after her speech, one, one of the, the staff called her and asked her, how can we pray for you? And she thought long and hard. She was quiet for a while, and then they didn't understand what she was thinking about. And finally, well, in their mind, they thought, oh, she's going to say, pray that I, you know, I do good in school, and when I graduate, I will have a job and, and all of this. But at the end of her like, long extended silence, she said, my dream is the dream of others become true. So pray for my dream. That's the sentence that came out of that little girl. She was an eighth grader. Just some of you are actually older than her. Pray that my dream becomes true. And her dream is the dreams of others become true. So I pray that your prayer is that others may 
encounter God, that your dream or your prayer become true. So remember that story of that man in stayed in, uh, in, in India, that Buddha, that man that led him to buy a Bible and read it every day. Remember that story of that family with the young boy. Remember that story of Jody, who's young, but thinking about others other than them, herself. A benchmark community, a masterpiece of God. By the grace of the power of the Holy Spirit, let us live our lives as we profess it. Let, let us live our lives as we profess it. May God bless you. Amen.